0: Let's take our Bibles out. We're going to turn to Exodus chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. It says, These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shiphrah, and the other Pua, When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birthstool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this, and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, He gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. You know, I was heard on the news over the last couple of weeks that they say that the most persecuted religion on the face of the earth today is Christianity. Did you realize that? Now, we live in a pretty sheltered area because we live in a nation that has Christian roots. There are places around the world, many of them, even today, where it is very dangerous to be a Christian. And I do think that we need to be ready or wary of it within our own nation. I think that we do face some persecution within our own nation, but it's light somebody making a little bit of fun of us, maybe being misunderstood, not fitting in. Whereas other places in the world, their persecution is more of getting beaten or imprisoned or your stuff confiscated or even possibly the loss of life. And it's nothing new to Christianity. It's part of our heritage all the way down through. But I do think that it's coming. And I think a large part of it, where it's going to come from, is in this idea of, well, they pronounce it as inclusiveness. And as you well know, in our faith, we can't include sin. We can't include different lifestyles that are that are an affront to God. One of the first steps is the church will probably end up losing its tax-exempt status at some point. You know, society's just getting crazy in the last ten years. In the news, over the last couple of weeks, there was one of the stories that was big, was a man has a baby. Well, if you look into the article that covered it, what it is is a transgender man. So biologically, what is it? It's a woman. And this woman has a baby from somebody else that she knows that is defined neither as a man or a woman, who happens to be biologically a man. So when you get down to the nitty and gritty of the story, a woman got together with a man, and the result was a baby. Now where's the story in that? But our society will tout that story as a man has a baby. It's foolish in our schools. And I think, again, Kind of because of where we're located, off the beaten path and stuff, I think we have it good in our schools. You know, what? in the schools, a lot of the administrations are pushing so much of this kind of agenda. And you think, isn't this an institution that teaches biology? But it's getting crazy. There's getting more and more pressure on institutions and organizations. And, and uh, I know there's already places talking about trying to take away tax-exempt status from churches because they don't support the, the morality of the day so to speak. I think it's also going to come across in another way. I think it will be defined as hate speech. Lisa and I have talked about this a number of times. and Just to kind of ready ourselves. Now I hope it's a readying ourselves for something that never happens. But I wouldn't be surprised if someday I end up sitting in jail. Because I'm not going to curb my speech to match the morality of the day. We're going to speak the truth. We're going to do it in love. And we're going to do it in gentleness. But we're going to speak the truth in love. And we're not going to adapt God's Word to a changing culture in our own society. Let God's Word adapt the culture, not the culture adapt God's Word. I do think there's hope for our nation to turn and start going the other way. At some point, you'd think that even just common sense would have to kick in in some of these areas. I was listening to something the other day that was talking about three four years ago. Some of the Ivy Leaguers decided to redefine. In fact, I think they came up with a new term. And they decided our our culture in America is now in a state of what they call post-truth, which is just humorous if you think about it. If somebody says they're post-truth, the question has to be, well, how do you know? Because if, if you're beyond truth, if there's no truth, then how do you know and why should I listen to you? Because it's probably not true anyway. But they did describe something pretty accurately, I think, within our society. They said the reason they call our society post-truth is because they don't care what's right and wrong or what's true and false anymore. Now... A much more persuasive argument is based on your own personal experience and your own personal feelings. That is what is persuasive in our society. How you feel about something, not whether it's the facts or or the evidence supports the way that you look at it or the way that you believe or the way that you feel, but just how you feel about something is what is important. And it it has taken us to some crazy places. We've seen white people self-identify as black people. They still look white to me, but they want to be recognized as black people. We see men want to self-identify as women, and women want to self-identify as as men. And some man comes up and says, I feel like I'm a woman. How do you know? Since you're not one, how do you know what it feels like to be a woman? But we've gone to just ridiculous, ridiculous levels of self-identifying. I think maybe I want to self-identify as a wealthy person. And I can't. <laughs> what was that? Can you can be Batman. You can do that. That's some grandsons right there with you. Yeah. I want to self-identify as a wealthy person. Now I don't think if I go check my bank account eagerly, so even if I'm excited and can't wait to check my bank account on Monday morning, I got a feeling it's still going to have the same little amount in there that it had when the banks closed on Friday. <laughs> it's just, is this a confession time? Or... <laughs> yeah, I better go watch my Amazon account here. I don't know. But, you know, it's just gotten crazy. But the scary part is, is that the crazy, the crazy seems to be bent on making us fit into it. If things continue to go that direction, at some point there's going to be a bigger price for Christians to pay to let your light shine within this world. Well, the reason that I bring that up is because when I look at Exodus chapter 1, I see people trying to live a godly life in an ungodly place. And I think that's what starts this whole thing. They were trying to live that Christian life in an increasingly non-Christian world. And that's what we're doing. From the time we end the book of Genesis, we see them in heavy favor among Egypt. We see them go from being treated very well to being made slaves and persecuted, whether it's a persecution of just being made fun of now or maybe being left out or passed over in a promotion or a raise or being picked on in some way or whether it gets more serious and we start looking at jail time or other things, the fact of the matter is we need to continue to live our Christian life no matter what the culture around us is doing. If our situation continues to become more and more of a non-Christian society, then we need to continue to live that Christian life within that non-Christian world. Well, there's four principles as I look at this passage that will help us to succeed. The first one is that God keeps His promise. Because remember, this goes all the way back to the covenant that God made with Abraham. And even, even at that time that God made that covenant with Abraham, God told him what would happen. He told them about this time of slavery and bondage. In Genesis chapter 15, it says, Then the Lord said to Abraham, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. You know where this fits in Genesis Remember God in chapter 12 came to Abraham, tells him to leave his father's house, come to the place I'm going to show you. He starts to give him the covenant. The covenant is I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to bless those who bless you. I'm going to curse those who curse you. I'm going to give you all this land that he delineates uh, for them. And through you, all the nations of the world are going to be blessed. Well, what do we see when we get to Exodus? That God's just keeping his promise. Now, they're not in their land yet. That's still future. But God is keeping His promise to Abraham. I'm going to make your name great. Those who bless you, I will bless. Look at what happens with Joseph. Joseph ends up through his, a series of events. He ends up down in the dungeon in Egypt. And he interprets a couple people's dreams. Pharaoh has some dreams. and And one of those people tells Pharaoh about Joseph. And Joseph ends up interpreting the dreams of Pharaoh and saving the world from a plague and being put second highest in command in Egypt. The world is blessed through Abraham's descendant, Joseph. Pharaoh recognizes that. Egypt is saved because of it. Saved from starvation and this famine. But now what happens? God continues to bless His people. And they continue to grow. It says in verse 7, But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Verse 9 says, The people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Verse 12, But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And then the Pharaoh says, Have the midwives kill all the baby boys, which of course they don't do because of the fear of God. And in verse 20, it says, "...and the people multiplied and grew very strong." So no matter what Pharaoh is doing so far, God is continuing to bless His people, and they're having large families, and they're growing and multiplying and filling the land. And so God is doing exactly what He told Israel He would do. And so God is faithful at keeping His promises. No matter what level of persecution that we end up facing, God will keep His promises. Now, Israel's promises were mostly looking forward. They were looking to the future. They were looking toward that promised land and one day being able to settle in that promised land. And then they will be a nation. They would be, to put it in our context, Christians living in a Christian nation. And that's something our generations in our country have been able to enjoy. As we look at that, why, when we're faced with whether it's ridicule or light persecution or even heavier, what will help us to stand strong? A recognition that God will keep His promises. You know, the Christian life, just like with Israel, is meant to be lived forward. This world is not our home. Jesus said, don't lay up your treasures here. Send them on ahead. Our home is yet to come. Our life here can only be lived properly as a Christian as we look forward. So you know what? As we're looking forward to something better, if somebody takes the things that we have here, it's not as big a deal. We can hold things loosely because this isn't our treasure. This life isn't the end of our life, but only the beginning. The first principle that I see in action here in the passage is is that God is keeping His promise. The second principle that I see is that the world persecutes. The world persecutes believers. That's just the way it works. Egypt blessed Israel by moving Him there and they were experiencing the blessings that would come from that, that would overflow from the blessings that God would give to Israel. But at some point... Rather than just continuing to enjoy the blessings, they become fearful. And what did they do when they got fearful? They said, we've got to get rid of these people. we got we got to subdue these people. we got to make sure and keep them down. Keep them weak. And it even gets to the point where they're cursing them because they're, they're treating them as slaves. They're forcing them into hard labor. And so they're cursing them. And God says, those who curse you, I will curse. There's a time coming up very soon where they're going to be cursed and God's going to bring the curse down upon them. You know what? We've seen the same thing in the 20th century. In the 20th century, what do we see? We see Hitler, Stalin, Mao Zedong. And you know what? Every one of them used the same excuse. There's too many people of religion or maybe too many people of a certain religion that are around here. And at some point, that religion is going to become violent, so we better deal with it now. And Stalin, murder, was it pushing 60 million people in order to keep violence from happening through this religion. Mao Zedong did the same thing. 45 million in what was it? Four years, I think. All to, keep, to make sure violence doesn't uprise out of this religion. And Hitler, of course we know, he actually had some of the lower numbers. Six million Jewish people he, he destroyed. But that's what the world does. The world gets fearful. And the world, the world lashes out like that. And the world persecutes us believers. Early Christianity faced the same thing. Look at our apostles. Every one of our apostles were tortured. Eleven out of the twelve were killed in torturous ways. John was tortured. He just didn't die during it, so then he got exiled out to Patmos. But they, they were persecuted. That's what the world does. They were trying to stomp out Christianity, try to get it while it's young, before it spreads. And of course, it didn't work. The Apostle Paul talks about his own persecutions as being part of the work of Christ. In Colossians chapter 1, verses 24 and 25, it says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of the body that is the church. Now let me tell you what he's not saying. He's not saying that the cross didn't quite, quite bring us the forgiveness, and so I have to finish the suffering for Christ. That's not what he's saying. And we know that from the next verse. It says, Of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me to make the Word of God fully known. So you see, what he's saying is Christ came and died on that cross. His suffering led to our forgiveness. But the Apostle Paul is saying, I'm suffering to get the message out. He was working tirelessly to spread the gospel as far as he could get it across the world. And because of that... They were hunting him down and persecuting him, and eventually they would imprison him and then kill him. But notice the way he describes it. It was just part of the ministry of Christ. It's what was lacking in Christ's afflictions. You know, I think of the missionaries to the Aka Indians down in Ecuador. You've heard of them before. I think of Jim Elliott and Nate Saint and Bobby Udarian, and there's five of them. And they met somebody from there and they set up a time where they could meet and they just happened to come in at a bad time when these people were, had some inner turmoil and they were kind of on the war path and they came across those missionaries and they slaughtered them. I think it was three years later, the wives of those missionaries went into to those same people and offered them forgiveness. And these people couldn't believe the thing that really stood out for them was I think it was Bobby Udarian got to the plane and got a gun. And then laid it down and let them kill him. He would not kill the people he came to save. And those people could not believe that he did that. And when the wives came with the story of the Gospel and told them the reason that they would lay down their arms and let them kill them, rather than fight back, the whole village got saved. And how did it start? Because these people were willing to suffer. They were willing to lay down their life like Christ did so that they could have the Gospel. You know what, in Peter, in his epistle, he tells us that's exactly what we're supposed to be willing to do. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 20 and 21, says, For what credit is it if when you <coughs> sin and are beaten for it, you endure? In other words, he says, look, if you go out and do something wrong and you get in trouble for it, there's no honor in that. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in His steps. He says if you're doing good and they persecute you for it, then you're just following Christ. Because that's what happened to Him. He wasn't put to death justly. He was put to death unjustly. He didn't do anything wrong. He got put to death for doing things right because of who He was. And He says if that's you, well then you're supposed to follow in Christ's steps. So that's okay. In 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 12, the Apostle Paul would tell Timothy, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, that was very clear in the society that the Apostle Paul lived down. He was a hunted man for his faith. But I think even in our society, you strive to live godly, you're going to be different. And if you're different, you're going to face some kind of persecution, some kind of ridicule along the way. But... As we consider this living Christian in a non-Christian world, the third principle that I see is that believers remain peculiar. There's always a temptation to want to fit in. We just can't do that in a lot of ways. If we're going to live out our lives faithful to the God who is faithful to us, then we're going to be different. We're going to be seen by the world to be strange at some points. And you know what? That's exactly what God wants us to be. Peculiar. We remain peculiar. Isn't it amazing? By the time you get to the Exodus, they've been over 400 years in Egypt. And they're still peculiar. They're still not Egyptians. They're still different. It's amazing. In fact, when you look over the history of Israel, it's a miracle. In A.D. 70, the temple was destroyed. Jerusalem was ransacked. And and Israel was kind of scattered. It was all under part of the Roman Empire at that time. A lot of Jewish people started hitting the road. Down through the centuries, Jewish people ended up in Russia and Poland and eventually New York. All over the place. I remember I had a professor one time that said there's more Jewish people in New York City than there is in Israel. <laughs> they end up scattered all over the world in all different cultures. And they're still them. For years, they didn't even have a homeland. 1948, we finally recognized that Israel was a nation where it is now and where it was before. Man, how many years, centuries went by. Israel had no homeland, but yet they still remained a distinct group in societies and cultures all over the world. And you know what? That's kind of a little picture of Christianity. As Christians, that's what we are. We're, we're distinct. We're, God, we're God's children. And if being part of God's family doesn't make you distinct, then I just don't know what will. And the New Testament proclaims this in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14-18. through 18, It says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people." Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing, and I will welcome you. And I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. And notice God says, do this, come out from among them and be separate. Look at what God is about to do with Israel. He's going to bring them out from among them and make them separate. He's going to deliver them and then dwell with them and that's exactly what God does with us. He delivers us out from the world and he says, "Be separate, and I will dwell with you." Living your life with God and for God makes you different. In 1 John chapter 2 and verse 15 it says, "Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him." Jesus told us in Matthew chapter 5 that we are to be in the world, but we're supposed to be salt and light. In that world. You know, sometimes salt stings the wounds. Sometimes light hurts the eyes when you're used to darkness. And people will recoil from that. But we are to continue to be that salt. Otherwise, if it loses its savory, what good is it? If you take the light and you put it under a bushel, what value is it? Jesus is recognizing that as His followers, we're going to be distinct. He was very distinct and he was the light of the world. Now he turns to his disciples and he says, Now you're going to be the light of the world. You'll be distinct. And that's one consolation, as our world if our world continues to grow darker around us, it leaves us more opportunity to shine the light. You know, in Exodus chapter nineteen and verse five, God would tell them now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. You shall be my treasured possession. The King James Version uses the word peculiar right there for treasured. You'll be by peculiar treasure, it says. In Deuteronomy 14.2, he says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession. Again, peculiar in the King James. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. In Titus chapter 2 and verse 14, he uses exactly the same terminology and says, Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. He says that peculiar possession that I talked about back in the Old Testament as being Israel, now in the New Testament church, Titus says, That's you. You're that peculiar possession. You're that people that are zealous for good works. And in First Peter, some of the same terminology used for Israel, he now uses for believers. He says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. You're supposed to be peculiar. If you're different as a Christian in this world, that's good. You're supposed to be different. And yes, at times that means the world is going to persecute and the world's going to make fun. And that's okay. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying run out and just be weird on purpose so that people treat you bad. That's not the point. You just live your life faithful to Christ and you'll be different enough. People will recognize. They will see something different in you. And you know, sometimes it might even be appreciated. Pharaoh appreciated it in Joseph for a time. But you know what? Not everybody's going to appreciate it. And sometimes we're called to live and live this Christian life in a very non-Christian world. But then lastly, the church is persistent. You know, the Pharaoh tries to kill the babies, the baby boys, doesn't work. We're going to find that he's going to end up taking the baby boy that's going to lead them out of Israel and raise them in his own house. I always love the irony of that. Pharaoh fights out against God and God makes Pharaoh feed him for 40 years and educate him and everything else. And then he uses them to deliver him. I love that. You know what? When Jesus was born, Herod tried to get rid of all the babies again. didn't work. You know, the, the leaders around the time of the early church tried to stamp out Christianity. didn't work. The more you persecuted it, the more it grew. You know, in, in, in Acts chapter 8... Which is after Acts chapter 7, obviously. But the reason I point that out is because Acts chapter 7 is about the stoning of Stephen. Stephen was one of the early church deacons. And Stephen got arrested, and he, he made a, he, he preached a message on the gospel, tying it back to Israel's history. And at the end of the message, they lashed out him, at him, and they stoned Stephen, killed him right there. Acts chapter 8 is what happens next. Well, the people get a little scared, and they start to move. They start to spread out a little bit, try to hide a little bit, but that's not all they do. It says, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. It's like throwing water on a grease fire. You thought you were putting it out, but it just spread it all over the place. And that's exactly what happened in the early church. And the more they persecuted it, the more it spread to other regions and areas, and more people became Christ followers, and more churches were started, and the church just grew. In fact, when you get up to A.D. 197, a man named Tertullian had become a Christian. And he wrote trying to get the Roman Empire to ease up on the Christians a little bit. And you know what he said? He said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. You know, I remember several years ago talking to a guy that was ministering from across the border into China. And he told me at that time, 35,000 people a day were becoming Christians in China. you imagine that? You know what my fear is for our country? More often than not, my fear isn't that Christianity will cease to have an impact because things get too hard. My fear is that Christianity will lessen its impact because things are too easy. You see, when things get hard, when things get rough, then people have to make a choice. When your faith costs you something, then it shows itself to be real. As we face persecutions in our own life and as we pray for those, our brothers and sisters, that are being persecuted around the world in a much more dramatic way than we are, what's going to help us stand strong? Understanding that God is faithful. He'll keep His promises. Understanding that the world persecutes. Believers remain peculiar. And then lastly, recognize that church is persistent.